0: you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, which is a parallel account. Most scholars believe um, an exact parallel to what took place in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus came to Nazareth. Um, As you're turning there, I just want to remind you that our church has been participating now uh, for what is almost four months in a Bible reading plan. And uh, if you're new here or maybe you started the Bible reading plan, and uh, life has gotten in the way, I want to encourage you and everyone to uh, pick it back up or begin afresh. Uh, We have a couple of our guidebooks, and that's merely what they are. D.A. Carson's For the Love of God uses um, the old Scottish pastor Robert uh, McShine's reading plan uh, to lay out a way to read through the Old Testament once And the New Testament and the Psalms twice, and ideally that was designed to have been done in a year. Uh, What we have done is taken that plan, which is four chapters... And we have uh, tried to make it an easier entry point for everyone by making it two chapters. So uh, if you look in the book at the beginning of the D.A. Carson book, there's a family and the private. And we, I think we're doing the family section right now where we are doing two chapters. So ideally, over the course of 2021 and 2022, our church will have read through the Old Testament once and the New Testament and the Psalms Twice. So uh, by doing two chapters at a time, it spreads it over two years. So it's an attainable goal in my estimation, but life happens. And and I just don't want you to feel like you are going to beat yourself up. If you're like me, I'm kind of like, I like checking boxes. I like finishing what I start. And uh, I can get discouraged when I am not keeping up with what I intended to do. But that is, uh, I think, kind of antithetical to the way Christians should live their lives. We are constantly having to remind ourselves of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are constantly, uh, like Romans 12 tells, tells us, renewing our minds, being transformed by the renewal of our minds, telling ourselves, reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel and that we are a new creation, and that we do live life by the Spirit. And so pick yourself back up by God's grace. Allow the Holy Spirit to work through that Bible reading plan, and do not get discouraged. Try. Just pick it up again. And maybe there will be time to catch up later, but, but start with today's Bible reading portion. I've been encouraged um, by the fact that there have been some Psalms, that have started to work their way in. This is part of the reason I love this plan, is because while you're working through, is that a polite way to put it? While you're working through Leviticus, you're you're reading some of the most glorious portions of the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So there's this kind of balance that's taking place. There's a New Testament uh, sometimes, or a Psalm that's coming along with that. Um, but uh, Leviticus is over. Uh, That was over, I guess, a couple days ago, and we're now turning into numbers. The Psalms persist, and I'm excited that we as a church will be back in the Psalms this summer. So I wanted to give you also not just a a reminder of our Bible reading plan, but an overview of where we are and where we're going uh, in the pulpit ministry. Uh, For the next 10 weeks, we will be continuing in Mark's gospel, but then around Father's Day, we will transition to another summer in the Psalms. And Lord willing, we will study 10 more Psalms, Psalms 11 through 20. And that's kind of the summer plan. And around around August 29th, the end of summer, if God wills, we will have the president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminaries, one of our six Southern Baptist Seminaries, Dr. Adam Greenway, filling the pulpit. Um, Brother Mark Dooley, uh, in his role at the Baptist Convention of Maryland and Delaware, has arranged for Dr. Greenway to be in the area. And uh, I love having Brother Mark as one of our elders, because he gives me the first call and says, hey, you know, Dr. Greenway will be around. And so we will have the privilege of hearing from one of our entity heads in the Southern Baptist Convention on the 29th of August. And then around Labor Day that weekend, um, I will be giving an introduction to our study in the book of Exodus and where we pick up with the Ten Commandments. Uh, the students this morning uh, are, are beginning a survey of the Old Testament. They didn't quite get to Exodus yet, but when they're studying Exodus, they will be reminded that the first 19 chapters are primarily about God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt and out of slavery. And really, there is a major turn that takes place in the book of Exodus at chapter 20, where God gives the Ten Commandments and the law. And so we will spend about eight weeks or so eight or nine weeks in the book of Exodus again this fall, which will be our third year in the book of Exodus. And then when that series finishes, we will pick back up with Mark's gospel. So there will be a little bit of a break in our time in Mark's study, but I wanted to kind of give you that overview uh, for what is coming up. But today we're in Mark chapter 6, and verse 1 through 6. And the setting has shifted for the first time since Mark 1, 14. Most of what has taken place in Mark's gospel has been around the Sea of Galilee and its surrounding villages. But now the setting shifts to Jesus' hometown, which we know is Nazareth. And the response that we'll see of the people in his hometown proves to be one of contempt in the end. One where people say, well, we know who this is, the carpenter, they call him, or the son of Mary. And we'll study a little bit about what was intended behind some of those sayings. And the rejection that Jesus faces in his realm. we will see is a foreshadowing of the way that, as John's gospel puts it, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. It was a foreshadowing of the full and Uh, final rejection of the Jewish people of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So I invite you to stand with me as we read from Mark's Gospel. Um, Mark chapter 6, verses 1, through the beginning part of verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. He left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the Carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. We'll pick up with the latter half of verse six, believing it goes with the next uh, portion next week. So please be seated. Well, you heard from Brother Andrew about his uh, hometown and where he grew up. And uh, that's why I kind of jokingly was saying uh, was stealing my thunder because I wanted to tell you about my hometown, Daytona Beach. And uh, I don't know about you, but this week especially, who who here was still praying for snow? I don't know if we've gotten our signals crossed, but I only wanted you to pray for snow in the winter. Um, But you know what? It's like this last week and this coming week, we are going to get all four seasons, it feels like. We had a little winter, looks like a little summer coming up. Uh, Southern Maryland is confused right now, which is what is making me miss my hometown. Daytona Beach is predictable, man. It is just palm trees and generally warm and two months of a little cool, you know, and then you're back to the warmth of the beach and the sunshine. But when I go home to visit my hometown, Uh, I, uh, having served as a pastor for many years and uh, having taught now as a senior pastor, I will go and visit the church in which I grew up, which is First Baptist Church of Daytona Beach. And of course, people are glad to see me. They know my parents. My parents are very involved there. But my favorite thing or kind of what what sticks out to me as I was trying to relate to kind of what might have taken place as Jesus was in the synagogue is Miss Robin Gentry. Now, Miss Robin is a lot like... Um, Miss Elena, or Miss Becky, or Miss Amy, who, by the way, kids, I I totally neglected to send you off to Children's Church right now, so if you're still in here, you can go to one of them, but they were the ones that helped with the kids, right? So um, Miss Robin would tell me when I come home, and she tells me every time I come, she says, Jason, this, she introduces me, it's like people that are new at the church or whatever, and she'll say, Jason, come over here, come over here. She'll say, Jason here grew up at First Baptist, and he was in my nursery, and what, and she has a real southern drawl, I can't do it real well, but what he would do is when he was in the, in the crib, he would stick his legs through the slats of the crib, and push off in the crib, and push his crib into the middle of the nursery. Isn't this cute little brother Jason here? And I'm going, oh my goodness. And, uh, and so she said, that as the story goes, I would kick my crib into the middle of the nursery and they would reset uh, the crib and then I would push off again. And finally they learned that my crib just needed to stand like an island in the middle of the nursery, un- unable to push myself anywhere. And so this is how I'm known when I go to First Baptist Daytona Beach. That is my legacy, is my strong legs and ability to kick my to the middle of the nursery, you probably have your own story of what it's like visiting home. Uh, people don't know you for who you've become in your profession or in your family life. They remember you as you were when you were growing up. Now, for some of you, that's comforting. You've kind of gone somewhere in life, and uh, maybe you know you're a CEO or a, a businessman or a commander or some. You know, somebody important and the demands of life and people on you, it's nice to go home and just be Sally, you know, <laughs> or, or, or old Bob, you know, uh, just not known for all the ways that people press in upon you. Uh, but this is what was happening as Jesus came. And some of the reception that he got is sort of related to this kind of familiarity breeds contempt type of a mindset. As we just read, and as Brother Andrew was sharing, um, Jesus did come to Nazareth and apparently was either invited or felt comfortable uh, standing and sharing uh, from the scripture uh, in the synagogue, and there was initial interest in Jesus. And quite honestly, as the text says, there was even astonishment at his acumen, his ability to teach, and what he could do. But what we see very quickly is in verses 1 through 3 that Hometown amazement mingled with skepticism of Jesus. Hometown amazement mingled with skepticism of Jesus. Verse 1 says he left there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. I'm kind of curious why Mark didn't name Nazareth. It makes you wonder if he was uh, a little disappointed in Nazareth. Didn't even want to honor it with the respect of naming it. It's just known as Jesus' hometown in Mark's gospel. Nazareth really wasn't much to speak of anyway. Um, it was never mentioned in the Old Testament writings. Uh, it's a relatively obscure, it's kind of like in the sticks, unimportant town in Israel. You'll recall when uh, Philip was trying to introduce the Messiah, the Savior of the world, uh, to Nathanael, that Nathanael's response in John 1 was, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, really? The Savior of the world from the sticks? From the backwater town of Nazareth? But this little village, 25 miles south and west of Capernaum, it was built on rocky cliffs, and it was the place where Jesus was raised by Joseph and, of course, by Mary. It was the place to which Jesus returned. And apparently, he was invited to speak I actually had the privilege of going to a little synagogue in Nazareth, perhaps a place, the place where Jesus uh, stood up. But this was a a tiny kind of, uh, maybe about the size of this middle section alone, uh, kind of synagogue location. And most scholars uh, do think that this chapter 6 parallels with Luke chapter 4, which, as Brother Andrew shared, is what the kids were studying today in CBFs. And both in Luke's gospel and in Mark's gospel, the initial response was astonishment. Jesus's teaching was full of wisdom, full of authority, and apparently the word about his healing ministry in Capernaum had reached Nazareth. And so that's what we read in, for example, Luke chapter 4 and verse 23. Uh, Jesus said to them after he had kind of read from the scroll of Isaiah. He says, no doubt you're going to tell me, um, you're going to quote this proverb, doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard, what we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. So Brother Andrew was exactly right. Uh, The people had gotten wind of not just Jesus' ability to teach, and they were experiencing that firsthand, but they had also heard news of what Jesus had done in Capernaum And he knew that there would be an expectation that he would heal there in Nazareth as well. But mere amazement at Jesus' teaching and even an awareness of his miraculous power, it was not enough to overcome what were the very irksome questions that were zinging around in the minds of those people in Nazareth. They had questions about Christ and his identity, and they they list a barrage of them. Mark does in uh, in this gospel, there's five. They ask, where did this man get these things? They said, what is this wisdom that has been given to him? How are these miracles performed by his hands? Now, Those are all very similar to some of the response that was taking place from the religious leaders in the previous chapters in Mark, right? Because they wonder, well, if he's doing this, it's either God or it's, it's some other power. And so there's this kind of question around how he's actually performing the miracles he's performing. And then they ask, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? I want to show you in just a few moments that all of those questions had a mixture of derision, of, uh, of scorn for Jesus in them. But this amazement, it was mingled with skepticism. And we see at the end of verse 3 uh, and into verse 4 that hometown familiarity resulted in rejection of Jesus. Hometown familiarity resulted in rejection of Jesus. Verse 3 at the end in our text says, so they were offended by him. They were offended by him. That word in Greek is the word scandalizo. Scandalizo. You can hear it in the way I'm saying it. It sounds like the word scandal in English. They were scandalized by Jesus. You see, in those days, people had very little concept of what we know as upward mobility, right? It's actually considered to be a virtue in our society that somebody could come from a place of relative poverty or from the backwoods of uh, some unknown town and rise to uh, nobility or power or acumen. That was not the case in first century Israel, One commentator said that a person's family identity and social status were considered to be established at birth. People were expected to respect the social boundaries that the so-called gods had ordained for them. In other words, people with noble roots were supposed to rule. There would be zero respect for Harry and Meghan, all right? And then people of lowly and poor uh, upbringing were supposed to be content in the humble position in which they were born. They couldn't believe that one of their own, a lowly carpenter from the backwater village of Nazareth, would be God's agent of salvation. But not only did they ask a question about his professional background with some measure of derision, like, isn't this the carpenter? Like, this is the guy we go to fix things with, you know? they also asked other questions that were filled with insult. William Lane, in his commentary, says it was contrary to Jewish usage to describe a man as the son of his mother, even if she was a widow, which most commentators believe that at this point, Mary probably was widowed, that Joseph wasn't alive. So that could explain why uh, they would describe him as the son of Mary, even to do so for a widow was considered a way of of scorning someone or to say something insulting, but there are certainly also, as we see in other places of the gospels, there were rumors swirling around jesus 's conception, and there 's probably a tinge of that going on here isn 't this the guy we know is mary's son like We'll admit that it's the son of Mary, but we're not going to say, you know, that things were all proper because we don't really know all that went on going on there. So what should have been a hometown reception turned very quickly into the hometown rejection of Jesus. But Jesus was not surprised. In fact, what he says in verse 4 is, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. Now it's very interesting that Jesus identifies himself with the prophetic ministry of those who preceded him. And just in case you missed the Old Testament, the prophetic office was not usually met with hometown ticker tape parades. They were not well-received. Queen Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord in First Kings 18. She sought to kill Elijah for his defeat of the prophets of Baal. Micaiah was imprisoned for prophesying defeat of King Ahab. Zechariah was stoned to death. Jeremiah was threatened with death. He was imprisoned, thrown into a well, and deported to Egypt, and his prophecies were burned. The theme of the prophets being rejected also comes in in the New Testament. You'll remember when Stephen was martyred. When Stephen was about to be stoned, he is sharing his version of what took place in the Old Testament, and he says, you killed the prophets, and you killed the Messiah that came in their line. Jesus and his identification as a suffering prophet is a major theme in Luke's gospel, such that he will say in, uh, in, the, in the gospel of Luke that uh, he must go to Jerusalem since no prophet, quote, can die outside of Jerusalem. There's this expectation that as a prophet, he has to go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the city that kills the prophets. Now, th- that's not a major theme in Mark's gospel, but it is certainly, I believe, on Jesus's mind here in chapter 6 when he says the prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. He's being rejected by his own. He is clearly living out what John wrote in his gospel chapter 1 verse 11. We read Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This episode in Nazareth is a foreshadowing of how Israel writ large will ultimately reject Jesus and murder the one who is a prophet greater than Moses. So Jesus identifies himself in that prophetic line. It's also interesting to note as we consider verses 3 and 4 the word technon technon the word for carpenter that we see here it can mean a carpenter that deals with wood, or it can also mean a stone mason. Uh, it is the word from which we get our word architect. You're the tech known in that. And it simply means chief builder. Jesus was a builder, whether it was with wood or with stone or both. It's a little ambiguous. R.C. Sproul points this out in his commentary. He says that the word in verse three that is used for they were offended by him, scandalizo. That word in the noun form is the word for a stone that builders reject, a scandalon. I found that so fascinating. I I, I want us to tie this together. Jesus, as the chief builder, as a a technon, he became a rejected stone. He was the stone that was rejected by the builders. Jesus quotes Psalm 118 of himself. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the scandalon. I'm a stumbling block. Paul says that in Romans 9, towards the end verse 30-something. He says, Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews. When it's not good enough, when the carpenter or the mason goes and he looks through the stones that will be the right size and right strength, when he rejects a stone, it becomes no better than something to trip over, a scandal, a scandal on. And Jesus says the stone the builders, people of Israel rejected, has become the cornerstone. Of course, you understand that as the apostles understood it, they built the foundation on Jesus, the cornerstone. That's why we sang saying cornerstone today. Christ alone is the stone the builders rejected, but he is the cornerstone, the very chief stone, the best for the church. And upon that stone, the cornerstone, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the apostles was written, the New Testament is our foundation upon that. And from there, the church, the building, we are being built brick by brick into the new temple in which Christ dwells by his spirit. Jesus is the cornerstone of this. He was the stone the builders rejected. Well, we see finally as we consider the last two verses of our text today, hometown unbelief that led to amazement of Jesus. And I pulled a little trick on you there. I changed the way the genitive is being used. This is Jesus's amazement of them. Jesus is the subject here. Hometown unbelief led to the amazement of Jesus. Read with me in verse 5. We see he was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he was amazed at their unbelief. In the last several sections of Mark's gospel, we've been reading and seeing how when Jesus performed a miracle, when Jesus demonstrated his authority, people were amazed at what he was doing. But now we are told, and it happens only twice in the New Testament, that Jesus is amazed. Once at the faith of someone, and here at the unbelief. He was amazed at the unbelief of the people of Nazareth. In fact, We see, not only was Jesus amazed by their unbelief, but we are met with the incredible statement that he was, quote, not able to do a miracle there, except for healing a few sick people. Now, I want to get to the not able deal in just a minute, but let's just deal with the fact that Mark just throws it out there like it's no big deal that he healed a few sick people. I mean, we would all be amazed at that. That He would heal a few sick people. It's as though, however, that in Mark's gospel, it's really anticlimactic what took place in Nazareth. Because if you look back, Jesus has healed a leper. He has calmed the storm. He's ruler over nature and uh, the authority over the wind and the waves. He's cast out an army of demons, and he has raised someone from the dead. And so it's like, oh yeah, and he healed a few sick people in Nazareth. It's like, no big deal anymore that Jesus could do this. It stands in a stark contrast to the faith of the people surrounding the sea. The few sick people is like small potatoes and it says a minimal and not very noteworthy thing because largely the sentiment around Jesus in his hometown was one of unbelief. Unbelief. You see, faith, was a prerequisite for the miraculous power of the Son of God. Listen, not because Jesus lacks the ability to save or to heal, but because apart from faith, God does not receive the glory for miracles that are done. I think that William Lane gets it exactly right. He says, quote, The performance of miracles in the absence of faith, could have resulted only in the aggravation of human guilt and the hardening of men's hearts against God. I want to read that again. The performance of miracles in the absence of faith could have only resulted in the aggravation of human guilt. It would have only made them more guilty and it would have hardened their hearts against God. The power of God which Jesus possessed, could be materialized in a genuinely acceptable way only when there was a receptivity of faith. Unbelief excluded the people of Nazareth from the dynamic disclosure of God's grace that others had experienced. Unbelief in the people of Nazareth, it excluded them from the dynamic disclosure of the grace of God that other people had experienced. Listen, it is not a good thing for Jesus to be amazed at your unbelief. In fact, unbelief is a sin. I would argue it is the greatest sin. It means that you're unwilling to receive or believe in the only one who has the power to save you and reconcile you to God. Now today's text is a short text. Its message, I believe, is straightforwardly clear, but it demands a response from us. And so I want to ask a few questions, aligning each question with the three main points from today. First of all, We saw that the townspeople were amazed. But their amazement, their astonishment, did not lead to a saving belief in Jesus. So by way of application, I want to ask, are you merely amazed by Jesus? Are you merely amazed by Jesus? You see, the world does not know what to do with Jesus. There are parts of his teaching that are inescapably wise, true and right. Jesus, some people will say, then was a good teacher. But that is where their admiration for Christ and their acceptance of him ends. Listen, friends, it is not enough to be merely amazed at a part or a portion of what Jesus taught or to be amazed at a part or a portion of his ability. See, you might be less concerned with what Jesus taught and more concerned today in what Jesus seems to be able to do for you and his miraculous power. He might be able to fix your marriage, or he might be able to um, lend you a hand with your child's obedience, or something like that. Or maybe he can restore your health. But friends, it is not enough to be merely amazed at a part or a portion of what Jesus taught or is able to do. Following Jesus involves believing and accepting him for all of who he is. Jesus is Lord, and some of his commands uh, may be harder for us to accept than others. And he may choose not to, heal you in this life, but to save you for eternity. We have to accept him for all of who he is by faith, and that faith, we are told, shatters our pride and gives glory to God. But there's another danger that we learned about from today's text in Mark 6, and that is you can be in very close proximity to Jesus and still not have saving faith in him. So secondly, by way of application, are you too familiar with Jesus? Are you too familiar with Jesus? Rick and Jennifer, you're right here in the, the shower zone. It's a good thing you've got your mask, because I actually, you're, you're close enough to, to see the, the spray coming out of my mouth. You can see, you can touch, you, you can feel, you. maybe you are a teenager here today, and you grew up in a Christian home with Christian parents Who brought you to a Christian church? You are this close to Christ and his word every single week. And yet you could walk away and never put your faith and trust in him as Savior and Lord. There is a danger that we can be so close to Jesus and yet completely miss him and what he did on the cross for us. The phrase goes, familiarity breeds contempt. You see Jesus more like a familiar habit. He's another tradition, like going to grandma's house after Easter service or putting up a Christmas tree or singing Christmas carols by candlelight on Christmas Eve. Instead of seeing Jesus like the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Son of God with authority and power to defeat sin and death, to crush his enemies and raise the dead to life. You see Jesus like a tame house cat that you can call over to keep your feet warm when you're cold. You're that close to Jesus, and yet you miss that he is a lion. The Chronicles of Narnia, there is intended to be a comparison with Aslan and Christ. And the danger is, don't get too familiar with a lion. He is powerful. And yet this lion loved you enough to lay his life down like a lamb. Oh, friends, please know Jesus for all of who he is. Don't be scandalized by Jesus. Some of you, as you've grown older, have come to understand that Jesus demands more of you then you are willing to give. You liked polite Sunday school version of Jesus that fed the 5,000 and would heal the sick, but you recoil at the demands of Jesus to take up your cross daily and follow him or face the prospects of losing house or family or friends and land to follow after Jesus and find all of those and more in the next life. Don't be scandalized by Jesus. Don't stumble over him. I was thinking today on my way here also, as a believer in Christ, I think this point of application applies for you. Don't be surprised if people stumble over Christ in you. Don't be surprised if people are offended by Christ in you. Isn't that just old... Johnny, I remember Johnny when he would shoot pool and and bet and, you know, gamble and drink and all these things. That's just old Johnny. How can that be a changed man? How can he be a new creation? Isn't that old Sally? I remember where, where she came from, and yet now she claims to be holier than thou. Don't be surprised if people stumble over Christ in you. Jesus told us, they were offended at him. They hated him. Will they not hate us? Will they not be offended by us if we are truly following after Jesus? So the question, don't become too familiar with him. Don't be scandalized. Stumble over him, and don't be embarrassed by Christ in you. Lastly, by way of application, are you a believer in Jesus? Not your parents, not your spouse, not your grandma. Are you a believer in Jesus? Not a fan of Jesus and his favorite sayings of yours. Not just familiar, not a churchgoer. Are you a believer in Jesus? The hometown Nazarenes rejected Christ. But that is not where the story ends. John says he came to his own. And his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Did you catch that? They were born not of blood. It's not because of what your parents believe. They were born not of the will of the flesh. It's not because, you don't become a child of God because you try harder and obey more. You don't understand the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died for your sins and lived for your righteousness. It's not the will of the flesh, and it's not the will of man. There is nothing you can do to earn God's grace. It is something you receive by faith. Jesus can be received by you, and you can become a child of God. You see, the Jewish people, in rejecting Jesus, they crucified the promised Messiah. But Paul explains to us that even the rejection of the hometown crowd, even the rejection of Jesus' own people, served an incredible purpose of God. Paul tells us that through the trespass of the Jewish rejection of Messiah, salvation has come to the Gentiles. If Jesus had not been rejected and crucified, you and I, as Gentiles, would never have been saved. By God's grace, he made a way that we would receive the gift of mercy through Jesus' death, on the cross. The cross of Jesus was the result of the unbelief of his own people. But the good news is that Jesus's innocent, substitutionary death on the cross means that we Gentiles are grafted into the promises of God's people. And Paul tells us that even the Jewish people can be grafted into the promises of Jesus if They do not continue, Paul says, in their unbelief. They can receive Jesus by faith as well. So we are all heirs of the promises by faith in Christ alone. Without faith, we are told in Hebrews, it is what? Impossible. Do you see the parallel? Jesus was not able. Without faith, it is impossible. To please God. God is not pleased by unbelief. It is the greatest sin we could ever commit. The rejection of Jesus would be the gravest error you could ever make. But let me close with the wonderful news of Romans ten nine through 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not a good teacher, not a miracle worker, Lord of your life, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks or Gentiles. You see the no distinction? They all receive Christ the same way. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you believe in Jesus? If you haven't, don't leave here today without placing your faith in Christ alone. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Spirit all across the room, there is a sense of conviction of us standing, each one on our own two feet before God. We will all, Paul tells us, stand before the judgment seat of God. And the question will be, what happened with Jesus? Not what did our parents do, what did our spouse do, what did our friends do? I pray that each individual in this room is wrestling with the reality of faith in who you are. Lord, not just the context of six verses in Mark, but all of what we've studied so far, I pray has been leading individuals in this room to a point of understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the authoritative Lord of the universe, with all power over nature, sickness, disease, death, demons, Jesus is Lord. So I pray that by faith, people in this room who have never done so will confess and believe, repenting of sin and placing faith in Jesus alone. Father, would you do that today? Heavenly Father, I I thank you for your wisdom. I thank you for the glory of the cross and the reality of it coming to be. I thank you for the mercy of the cross. And I pray that people by faith, would believe in you today. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the comfort of the Spirit, the assurance of faith, and the riches of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.